And um, I'm actually going to get you to think about uh, that question. That's uh, Melissa. Marisa, sorry, couldn't quite read. Uh, not the one on names. Uh, the Marisa asked, she says, I don't know how you feel about evangelism. I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about evangelism? We're thinking about the Holy Spirit and mission or witness evangelism. I'm putting that, I'm not making a distinction between those, whether it's our speaking to our neighbour or our sending someone across uh, the world to speak to someone there. We're talking about proclaiming uh, the gospel to people. Our first two sessions, if you like, have looked more uh, inwardly, uh, more personally about the Spirit uh, and his recreation of us and bringing us to relate to God, uh, particularly his Father yesterday, um, and his change in us. Now we're thinking about his work in using us and speaking through us. Uh, so turn to your neighbour. You've got about 30 seconds or a minute. Someone says, evangelism, what sort of things do you feel? Okay, great. Let's uh, feedback. I imagine we will feel a variety of things. What are some of the things you might feel? Inadequate? Guilt? <laughs> yeah. Excitement. You may. Yeah. Keep going. Negative connotations. <laughs> of, of what sort? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Sure. Unrealistic. Burden I can't meet. Yeah. Other thoughts? Confrontation. Yeah. The, sorry, the, the joy of confrontation. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that says about your personality, Pat. Sorry? It's easier to kind of organic. Yeah. Yeah. So, in the context of relationships and someone just happens. Yeah. Okay. We had a training seminar on events a while ago and um, the person leading the group asked that, that question. We got a very similar kind of range of answers. I think one of the things that we, we quite often don't say um, is simply that we feel scared. That's how I feel actually about evangelism. Um, I can feel easily scared of what people might think of me, scared of the impact on relationships, scared of not knowing what to say, Scared I can't answer their questions. Different aspects of that fear, but a bit, a bit timid, a bit scared. Well, the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel. I'd like you to turn to Acts uh, chapter 3. Uh, we're not going to look at one passage uh, this morning. We're going to sort of flick through a whole variety uh, and we'll see quite how far uh, we get. Uh, and Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, makes it very clear why the gospel spread. It spread through the efforts of the apostles and the others who became Christians, but while it was through them, it wasn't because of them. It was because of the work of the Spirit. And this uh, links back to what we just heard about the end of uh, Luke's gospel, where they had to wait until the Spirit came to empower them for the work uh, of witness and hence my first heading the Holy Spirit power to speak for Jesus actually I said Acts 3 turn to Acts 4 uh, Acts 4 they get arrested in uh, chapter 3 we won't look at that um, and they're uh, thrown in jail um, for speaking about Jesus um, and Peter and John are then brought uh, to a sort of trial um, in chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 5 
you've got the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law, so you've got all the theological and religious leaders and bigwigs. And Peter and John have brought before them, verse 7, and they begin to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Remember, these, these guys are fishermen. This is a pretty daunting moment. You know, it's like, whoa, we've stirred up something big in Jerusalem. If I, you know, I think if I were them, I'd be thinking, well, I could just play it down a little bit. You know, I'm sorry to have upset things. You know. Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we've been called to a to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he did it, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and so on. It doesn't really hold back. <laughs> and as we read on, they, verse 13, they are astonished at the courage of them and realise they're unschooled and ordinary men, and they take note they've been with Jesus. And my point is very simply, that little phrase in verse 8, that we can run over so quickly, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responded that way. The Spirit empowered Peter. There is a strong link in Scripture between the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and people speaking the Word of God. We see it in Jesus' ministry uh, him, uh, uh, itself. He reads in the synagogue in Luke 4 from Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to speak. There are lots of other examples of this in Acts as well. Chapter 4, verse 31, for example. They get together and pray, uh, given the threats from the religious leaders around. And uh, they pray for uh, boldness and so on, verse 29. And after they prayed, verse 31, the place where they meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We'll turn over to chapter uh, 6 and uh, verses 9 and 10 when Stephen is speaking and he's opposed by people from uh, members of the synagogue of the freedmen and they begin to argue with him. But, verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. See here, Stephen's not only given boldness by the Spirit, he's given wisdom by the Spirit, so that he knew what to say. Which is, of course, only what Jesus promised his disciples. Luke 12, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. As I said before, I easily feel the temptation not to speak about Jesus because I can feel the disapproval of those around me. You know, people don't have to threaten me with anything more than a raised eyebrow. And I can feel a bit uncertain. 
and I can feel like I don't know what to say. And I need to pray that God will empower me by his Spirit to give me the boldness and the wisdom to speak. It doesn't mean we don't do useful things like learning gospel outlines or something like that which can really help in what we say to people. But it does mean we don't think it's me going, I'm strong enough, I'm clever enough, I can do it. I say, actually, I'm weak. And I need the Spirit to empower me. In fact, the Apostle Paul, we'll look at a passage later on if we have time. The Apostle Paul saying how weak and trembling he felt. So I, th- I think we've got, got this, 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 this mythical great evangelist in our head who is just, yeah, bring them on, I'll just tell them the gospel. And some people, praise God, are, are that relaxed and, and feel really happy about it. But actually, that's not the general picture in Scripture. The Apostle Paul says he, he speaks with fear and trembling. That's me. But he looks to the Spirit to empower him to speak. Now, I do think there's great variety in how this will show itself. I've said some people are gifted, some people are very able, find it very natural, that's great. Others do find it very hard, though. I remember the story of a student who, um, who was painfully shy and painfully nervous of speaking anything about the Gospel to his friends. But he really wanted his friends to understand the good news of the Gospel. And he prayed for God's help. And he thought, I'm going to invite this friend to a talk. And so, he got the invite in his hand and he went to his friend's room in his hall of residence and he knocked on the door and the friend opened the door and stood there, hi. And he went... And and in the end, he just shoved this invite in his hand and then just ran down the corridor. (laughs) That's all, all he could bring himself to do. But... That was more than he would have done left to himself. That, not ideal, but I think an example of the empowering of the Spirit still, and I hope over time, they do more than that. Whatever our personality, whatever our natural gifting and gifting by God, the Spirit wants to empower us to speak for him. Point number two on the handout. The Holy Spirit, the director of missions. Turn on to chapter 13 in Acts, and we see another dimension of the Holy Spirit's work in evangelism. It's the church in Antioch, which uh, has come into being with the spread of the gospel. Um, great church, it seems, in uh, the way it functions, and it's how mixed it is, and the uh, care it shows for the church in Jerusalem. Lots of things that the church in Antioch we could learn from. But verse 2 of chapter 13, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke here, maybe through a a prophecy or something. Uh, But the point is, he's the one who is behind this mission trip. And then verse 4, they're sent on their way by the Spirit. And this is the start of what we would think of as international mission. 
Uh, so far, the gospel has spread as people have simply kind of gone out from Jerusalem because they had to go out of Jerusalem and then they found themselves in a different place and they talked to somebody. This is the first time someone said, you know what, let's send you from here over there with the message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit starts it. The Holy Spirit kicks it all off. Because God is an evangelistic, missionary God who wants people to hear about him and so the Spirit sends people into mission. Now, I don't think this means that, you know, you as the church in Oxford need to wait for the Spirit to say, uh, I think we should send James to whichever country uh, before anyone's ever sent from Oxford. Um, this is a unique situation. It's the start of mission. And um, as we read on in Acts, the second and the third missionary journeys are started without any comment that the Holy Spirit's kicked them off or anything. My point is simply that it shows God's concern that the gospel spreads and that the Spirit is the one who initiates that. A Spirit-filled church, I believe, will be a church concerned for the spread of the gospel and that spread beyond its own boundaries. Then we see the Spirit kind of guiding or directing mission over in chapter 16. So just turn on with our little survey. Chapter uh, 16. Uh, This is actually in the second missionary journey now. And um, uh, Paul, with various companions, have set off together. And if you look at verse 6, they travel through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept from the, by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They come to the border of Mysia and they try to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they bypassed Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul has a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up at once, ready to leave for Macedonia, Uh, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, They're in what is central Turkey uh, today. Um, And actually they're in central Turkey because they've been kept from uh, going into the sort of the southwest corner uh, of uh, Turkey. Um, And so instead of going southwest, they try going kind of northeast. That's where Bithynia is. But we're told the spirit wouldn't let them do that either. So they could either turn around, because they sort of heading straight ahead, they've gone that way, couldn't go that way, tried to go that way, couldn't go that way, so they could turn around, that's not much of an option, so they keep going straight forward, and they end up on the coast at Troas, uh, and at Troas they have this vision of a man of Macedonia, Macedonia is just further that way. Okay. Now again, we don't know how the Spirit worked here. Was it situations? Was it an overwhelming inner compulsion that they couldn't go somewhere? Whatever it is, the Spirit sets up roadblocks. Can't go there, can't go there, so they go down here, get a vision, go over there. Now, the Spirit is guiding where their mission goes. That's quite interesting to think about how this applies to us today. When, um, When I was at a church in Leicester, 
and we said we wanted to uh, plant a new church. Uh, uh, we thought that was right for where we were at. Uh, this passage was turned to by various people saying, we need God to give us a vision for where this church plant should be. Because there's quite a lot of discussion of where it should be and some debate on that. So this passage was quoted a number of times. So do you think we need to wait for a vision of where Magdalen Road um, you know, looks to plant a church in East Oxford or a vision of what new missionary outreach it should do in East Oxford or anything? Talk to your neighbour for one second. What do you think? Sorry, the question is, does this guidance by the Spirit mean we should wait for guidance by the Spirit in our evangelistic endeavours? Okay, guys. Sorry, need to need to move on. Some sort of give you more time. Quick thoughts. Yeah. Okay, good. Other thoughts? Well, Paul wasn't sitting around waiting for a vision, was he? He was going left and right. Couldn't go that way, couldn't go that way, and then the yeah. vision came. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, we'll come back to that. I think it's for a second. Um, uh, this is obviously the spirit guiding where they go. A more precise question for us is, is this an example of normal guidance in uh, mission? Uh, if you read through Acts, you'll see God miraculously guiding people a number of times, often linked with the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, the Spirit tells Philip to go and stand next to a you know, the road, um, a chariot in chapter 8. Um, but actually, as you just heard, most decisions are made without any such miraculous prompting. So, just in the previous verses of this mission trip, uh, Paul and Barnabas decide to start the journey without any such uh, guidance. Uh, they choose to take Silas uh, with them and Timothy with them. They decide to go into the regions of Phrygia and Galatia uh, they, and then they choose to try and go southwest, and then they try and go northwest, and so on. All these decisions are being made without any comment that the spirits telling them what to do. Yes, Pat. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that there is this constant expression of dependence on God in prayer. Um, and I take it looking to him for wisdom and so on, absolutely taken as read. Um, my point is simply that they then think, you know what, it would be good to go on another mission trip. And let's try going over here and over here and over here and so on. And so their approach, I think, in dependence on God is that they make decisions that seem wise and good and they say, let's have that second journey and so on. And the special guidance they receive comes basically unsought while they are pressing on in trying to achieve God's purposes. They don't wait for it or even look for it. It just happens. As I say, with the roadblocks, you don't even know how conscious they were that was God saying it. It could be a circumstance thing that they say, well, actually, God obviously doesn't want us to go there then. And so with our church plant, we looked at our city and we looked at where people lived and where the churches were and so on and we made what we hoped were good and godly uh, decisions and God didn't give us a vision of uh, a man looking like a certain characteristic of Leicester (laughs) that said, come over here. But God obviously wanted to push these guys in a certain direction and I I mention all this both just because it's clear I think hopefully perhaps demystify some of what people are sort of guidance by the Spirit sort of stuff um, but to give us confidence that God is behind our missionary endeavours and if he wants to nudge us over here and nudge us over there well maybe that'll be a circumstance or whatever maybe we'll have some overwhelming feeling together as a group of what we should do but let's just press on humbly trusting him looking to him and knowing he wants us to be about this sort of stuff. And he, he's with us in it, and will guide us as he wants to in it. I, I just find that quite encouraging. I'm not just like venturing out on my own. Let's move on to another possibly controversial area. I haven't really got time to do this in great depth. The Holy Spirit, the source of signs and wonders. A little over 20 years ago, A book was written by John Wimber, uh, which created something of a storm at the time. It was called Power Evangelism. Uh, The main issue was uh, that he contended that evangelism, mission, should involve signs and wonders. Because back in chapter 8, verse, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, stay and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Power to be my witnesses. Is that then the power we've been speaking about so far, the power to speak boldly and to know what to say and so on? Or is it more than that? Well, John Wimber contended it was indeed more. And it was the power to be able to perform miracles. And that that should be a normal part of uh, evangelism today. Um, time is moving on, so I won't get you to sort of discuss this and stuff. I'll just give you a few quick thoughts. And then I'll, I do want to go on to our last section, which I think is important. Um, signs and wonders is a phrase you find throughout uh, the Bible. Uh, they are wonders in that they are amazing. They are signs in that they point you to something. They are significant. Uh, they, they come in kind of big groups in the Bible associated with God's acts of salvation. So in the Old Testament, the great time of signs and wonders is the Exodus. 
Deuteronomy 26, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with miraculous signs and wonders. And they're linked with the person who God performs them through. So in that case, it's Moses. And uh, you get references that, that, Jesus, that God's going to kind of exalt Moses, so people respect Moses and know that Moses is God's anointed man for that job. And in the New Testament, signs and wonders are linked first with Jesus. I put Acts 2 down on the sheet, I think, uh, where you see that Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. The miracles are kind of Jesus' accreditation that he comes from God. And then we're told signs and wonders are also done by the apostles, and I put an example on them there. And it's just worth noting, I put Acts 5 down, have I? Yeah. Just, just, just worth n- noticing what sorts of signs and wonders we're talking about here. People are bringing the sick into the streets and lying them on beds. So that, what's happening? Peter's walking down the high street, right? So people are lying down there. Okay, so the whole series of people lying on the floor there. Sun's shining over there. Peter's taking a stroll. And his shadow is falling on them. And as he's walking this way, what's happening? What's happening? They're all getting up. You know, people down there are going, come on, down here, you know, keep walking. They're all getting up. Now, I've been to various healing meetings today, but nobody sees that today. It's worth saying that. God heals today, I'm sure he does. We had a remarkable story at our church just, just a few weeks ago. But not anybody and everybody just getting up. You know, clear out the hospital ward. Everyone. Go all go home today. You know. And these signs and wonders act like God's sort of stamp of approval then. Not only on Jesus, but on his apostles. Paul refers to signs and wonders as being one of the marks of an apostle in 1 Corinthians 12. An apostle should be able to do these because it showed that an apostle was, it showed that that person was an apostle, one of God's authorised spokespeople. So what about signs and wonders today? Well, there's one very clear way we expect the Spirit to use signs and wonders today, and that is that we look back to the ones that he's done already. So we look back to the ones done by Jesus and the apostles and we say, look, these guys bear God's stamp of approval because of what they did. That's what the apostles did. The apostles said, Jesus of Nazareth. He was accredited by signs and wonders. And we point people back and say, look, Jesus did this stuff. But should signs and wonders continue today as part of all of our ongoing evangelism? John Wimber said yes. I say no. The picture I think we get in the Bible is that God confirms his acts of salvation and his message of that salvation with those signs at the time that it all happens. And then later generations look back to those acts rather than God repeatedly confirming it in each new generation. Having said that, I, I, I... 
want to say immediately there are many reports from around the world and throughout history of God working in miraculous ways. A moment of supernatural protection, a miraculous healing, often in missionary contexts, and often those have functioned in a way to make uh, the people who've experienced them and seen them see that God stands behind those missionaries and this message. But at the same time, you must remember, there have been occasions where there hasn't been miraculous protection and the prayer for healing hasn't been answered. There have even been examples where the local witch doctor has performed a healing and the missionary hasn't. And we have to take that seriously. So, I certainly don't want us to say God doesn't do these sorts of things today. I just want to say there's a clear difference between the time of the apostles and our time. Uh, Peter and Paul, I think, could clear out the hospital ward. Actually, nobody does that today. Well, that's raised a few questions for you. And time is such, so I'm going to press on because I want to do our last section. The Holy Spirit's power for conversion. Let's leave Acts. Let's just turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This will actually shed a little bit of light on the, the signs and wonders bit a little bit as well. Um, I am conscious there's lots more to say on that. I've given you a very brief thought. Um, so uh, please don't think I think that's the whole argument. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, Paul says that um, when he came to Corinth, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, this uh, verse 4, and this demonstration of the Spirit's power, that verse has actually been used a great deal in the signs and wonders debate. But I don't think it can mean, he says, he's saying, I, I didn't come with a clever argument, I came with lots of miracles. And the reason I don't think he can mean that is because of what he has said already. Back in chapter 1, uh, he talks about how God's wisdom is wiser than uh, our, God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than our strength, and so on. And he's he's responding to what's go, what people are looking for in his culture of the day, what uh, people are after, what people consider wise, what people consider strong. So, verse twenty-two, for example, of chapter one, the Jews demand signs; they want to see some miracles. That's what they're after. And the Greeks look for wisdom. They want some clever, clever arguments. That's what they're after. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. An example of weakness rather than power and an example of foolishness rather than wisdom. But the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. There's a lot going on there, but the point is, he's saying, well, the Greeks are after this stuff, fancy philosophical wisdom. I'm not going to give it to them. I'm going to give Christ. And that will appear foolish. The Jews want miraculous signs, but I'm going to preach the gospel, and that will look weak. 
And that's what he's referring to in chapter 2 when he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And when he says then, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, uh, what he's saying is he didn't want them to be so convinced by his clever arguments that it rested on that, nor on signs and wonders, so it rested on that. He wanted them to simply hear the message of the Gospel. And the demonstration of the Spirit's power here is that people come to believe despite the foolishness and the weakness of the cross. The word demonstration he uses is unusual. It's got the idea of of sort of evidence or proof to it. And the proof of the power of the Spirit is that he brings people to believe this foolish, weak message. And that is what Paul goes on to describe in verse 6 onwards, that the work of the Spirit is to reveal the truth of the Gospel and to bring people to understand it. I've uh, got a chapter on that very passage in the book I wrote on the Spirit, if you want to sort of follow that up. The work of the Spirit, we read elsewhere, is to open blind eyes, to bring conviction of sin, to bring understanding of Jesus and of the cross. The Spirit brings power for people to be saved. So when we are trying to tell the Gospel to our, our friend at work, our neighbour, person at the school gate, family member, and we feel scared. Well, Paul felt scared. And we might feel like it's a, it's a bit of a ridiculous message that people, no one's going to believe this stuff. Well, Paul felt this is a, this is a message of foolishness and weakness. And yet he knew that this is God's wisdom and God's power and the Spirit will work to bring people to believe this. And so I'm going to know nothing but Christ crucified. I'm not going to pander to what they want. I'm just going to tell it to them. And people are saved. No tricks, no gimmicks, no clever arguments. So the proof of it comes from the Spirit's And people's faith rests not on our cleverness, but on God's power. As I think about trying to spread the gospel, that encourages me.